podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Thursday, and that means I'm reading something offbeat. Sundays are for classics, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Tonight, I am in Massachusetts, during the Gilded Age, in June 1893, for the trial of Lizzie Borden, for the murder with a hatchet of her stepmother and her father, in the family home, back on August 4th, 1892. And I am reading the opening defence, because even though she totally did it and everybody knew she totally did it, Lizzie Borden was found not guilty by 12 good and true gentlemen of the jury. This opening in her defence is why she was found not guilty, in my opinion. It is brilliant writing and it was delivered very effectively by its author, A.J. Jennings, Lizzie's defence attorney. And just so we get the chronology right, the defence goes after the prosecution, which is fair. Prosecution says you're guilty, well, they have to present their case, and then you get to defend yourself from their claims. And when both sides are all done, the jury then decides whether the prosecution claims have been proved beyond a reasonable doubt or not. And if not, then the verdict must be not guilty. Not guilty is what happened to Lizzie, and it was the right outcome legally, but she totally did it. That's my view. She got off because of great lawyering. Before I get to reading, a bit of background about Lizzie Borden at the time of the murders. She was 32 years old, never had a job, never had a lover or a husband or even the sniff of one. She did a spot of volunteer Sunday school teaching, a bit of volunteer church work, and she was active in the women's temperance movement. She liked to play the devoted church woman, but it was a cover to escape any responsibility or challenge. She liked the finer things in life and wanted father to buy her and her sister a nice house at the top end of town, where they could live away from him. But he was a stingy and mean man, and he wouldn't buy it for them. And Lizzie was a lazy, greedy girl who wanted dad's cash. The motive was money, that age-old motive. So, on the 4th of August, while Emma was out of the house, and the stepmum was upstairs, and Lizzie was also upstairs, and the maid was outside washing windows. Lizzie murdered the stepmother in the upstairs bedroom around 9, 9 9.30am with a hatchet. Then she waited, and 90 minutes later, as Dad was back from his morning walk and taking a nap on the couch downstairs, and the maid was by then at the top of the house in her room resting, Lizzie went downstairs and murdered her father with the same weapon. She then spent 8 to 13 minutes cleaning herself up and then she put on a show. Maggie, 
Come down, come down quick. Father is dead. Somebody came in and killed him. She immediately sent Maggie out of the house to get a neighbour friend, Adelaide Churchill, and to fetch a doctor and the police. Lizzie was alone in the house after the murders, probably for about 30 minutes. Lizzie never went upstairs to check on the stepmum. She said later it was because she thought the stepmum had gone out. Nonsense, of course. She left it to her poor friend, old Adelaide, to find the stepmother's body. How awful. Then the police arrived and the circus began. I say circus because, well, the prosecution lost the murder weapon. That was rather unfortunate for them. On top of that, no one was able to present any evidence that Andrew Borden had taken his morning walk. Doesn't sound like something very important? Well, in the hands of a defence lawyer, it matters a lot. Lizzie Borden had an excellent defence. The very best defence that Dad's money could buy. If you were on the jury, would you be convinced of a reasonable doubt? I think after you listen to this, you might be. And I should say, parche, to any of you who might believe that Lizzie Borden didn't do it. That's your prerogative. I don't share that view, as you might have gathered. But I digress. Let's begin. May it please your honours, Mr Foreman and gentlemen of the jury, I want to make a personal allusion before referring directly to the case. One of the victims of murder charged in this indictment was for many years my client and my personal friend. I had known him since my boyhood. I had known his oldest daughter for the same length of time, and I want to say right here and now, if I manifest more feeling than perhaps you think necessary in making an opening statement for the defence in this case, you will ascribe it to that cause. The counsel does not cease to be a man when he becomes a lawyer. Fact and fiction have furnished many extraordinary examples of crime that have shocked the feelings and staggered the reason of men. But I think no one of them has ever surpassed in its mystery the case you are now considering. The brutal character of the wounds is only equalled by the audacity, by the time and the place chosen. And it needed but the accusation of the youngest daughter of one of the victims to make this the act, as it would seem to most men, of an insane person or a fiend. A young woman, 32 years of age, up to that time of spotless character and reputation, who had spent her life nearly in that immediate neighbourhood, who had moved in and out of that old house for 20 and 21 years, living there with her father and with her stepmother and with her sister. This crime that shocked the whole civilised world, Mr Foreman and gentlemen, seemed from the very first to be laid at her door by those who represent the government in the investigation of the case. We shall show you that this young woman, as I have said, had apparently led an honourable, spotless life. She was a member of the church. She was interested in church matters. She was connected with various organisations for charitable work. She was ever ready 
to help in any good thing, in any good deed. And yet, for some reason or other, the government, in its investigation, seemed to fasten the crime upon her. The law of Massachusetts today draws about every person accused of this crime or any other the circle of the presumption of his or her innocence and allows no juryman or jury to cross it until they have fulfilled the conditions required, until they show that it has been proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he or she is the guilty party, they are not allowed to cross the line and take the life of the party who is accused. Now I want to say a word about the kinds of evidence. There are two kinds, direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Direct evidence is the testimony of persons who have seen, heard or felt the thing or things about which they are testifying. They are telling you something which they have observed or perceived by their senses. For instance, if this was a case of murder by stabbing, and the man should come before you and testify that he saw the prisoner strike the murdered person with a knife, that is direct evidence. That tends directly to connect the prisoner with the crime itself. Circumstantial evidence is entirely different, and I want to say right here, and I call your attention to it now, I do not think that the Commonwealth will question the statement when I make it. There is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape or fashion. They have not had her hand touch it or her eye see it or her ear hear it. There is not, I say, a particle of direct testimony in the case connecting her with this crime. It is wholly and absolutely circumstantial. Now, in certain cases, circumstantial evidence may be as sure and certain as direct evidence. In some cases, more so, because the eye and the ear deceive, as well as circumstances and events. But, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, there is no class of evidence known that under certain circumstances is so dangerous and misleading as circumstantial evidence. Our books are filled with cases where the accused has evidently been proved by circumstantial evidence to have committed the crime, and subsequent investigations or confessions have shown that he did not. Circumstantial evidence has often been likened to a chain. These facts which have to be proven in order to allow you to draw the inference as to her guilt or innocence, have been called links in the chain, and every essential fact in that chain must be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Every one of them. You cannot have it tied together by weak links and strong links. You cannot have certain facts in there which you believe and tie them to some other facts of which you have a reasonable doubt. You cannot put them together. You must throw aside every fact about which you have any reasonable doubt. And unless with the links which you have left, you can tie this defendant to the body of Andrew Borden and Abby Borden, you must acquit her. That is the law and that is the law you have sworn to apply to the evidence. 
Now, these facts might be classed, perhaps, under the four heads of motive, weapon, exclusive opportunity, and conduct and appearance of the defendant. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, we contend that with the evidence that has already appeared in this case, and what we will show you, there is absolutely no motive whatever for the commission of this crime by this defendant. They have not a scrap of evidence in the case. But it may be said that it is not necessary to prove the motive. Somebody killed them. What motive did somebody else have? We cannot tell. One of these persons that is killed is the girl's own father. And while in direct evidence where the person was seen to kill, where they have been directly connected with the killing, it is of little or no importance whether a motive is shown or not. Yet where you want the motive in order to have it as one of the links of the chain which connects the crime with this defendant, it becomes of tremendous importance. And we shall show you, if not already shown, that this defendant lived quietly with her father, that the relations between them were the relations that ordinarily exist between parent and daughter. We shall show you, by various little things perhaps, that there was nothing whatever between this father and this daughter that should cause her to do such a wicked, wicked act as this. And I want to say right here that the government's testimony and claim is that whoever killed Abby Borden then killed Andrew Borden. And even if they furnish you with a motive on her part to kill the stepmother, they have shown you absolutely none to kill the father. Absolutely none, unless they advance what seems to me the ridiculous proposition that she, instead of leaving the house after killing the stepmother, waits there an hour or an hour and a half for the express purpose of killing her own father, between whom and herself there is shown not the slightest trouble or disagreement whatsoever. In measuring the question of motive, you have got to measure it in this case as applied between the defendant and her father. Because the government's claim is that whoever killed one, killed both. Now, as to the weapon. The blood that was shown upon the axes, which were guarded so carefully at first in this case, has disappeared like mist in the morning sun. And the claw-headed hatchet that they were so sure committed this deed, so sure has disappeared from the case. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, I contend that as to the weapon, they have either got to produce the weapon which did the deed, and having produced it, connect it in some way directly with the prisoner, or else they have got to account in some reasonable way for its disappearance. And now as to exclusive opportunity. I do not propose to spend very much time on this. The attempt has been made to surround this house, completely close it in. You have seen it. You have seen how they have tried to shut it in. You have seen the opportunities that anyone would have to escape through it. And Mr. Foreman, and gentlemen, I want to call your attention right here that there has not been a living soul in all this search and investigation that has been made about the whereabouts and the doings of Andrew Borden on that morning. There has not been a living soul put on the stand here to testify 
that he was seen coming down the street from his house. He was absolutely invisible. Was it any easier for him to be unseen than it would be for somebody escaping from the house if they walked quietly away? And so, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, without spending further time, we shall ask you whether the government have satisfied you beyond a reasonable doubt that she did kill not only her stepmother, but her loved and loving father on the fourth day of August last. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. A rousing defence of a murderer, in my opinion, but everyone has the right to a defence. It's a bedrock principle of our society. Innocent until proven guilty. Proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecution of Lizzie Borden did not meet that requirement, and so Lizzie Borden was acquitted. She immediately bought a fancy house at the top end of town and spent her days shoplifting and getting shunned. Because Lizzie Borden totally did it. And of all the places to spend her millions, she chose the very town where everyone knew who she was and that she did it. What kind of person wants to live like that? Whatever kind of person she was, her own sister walked out of her life and Lizzie Borden lived the last 22 years of her life, friendless pretty much, dying of pneumonia in 1927, aged 66. She was worth around $5 million in today's money when she died, and her sister, Emma, died almost immediately and the two are buried together. And what of the Borden Murder House? Well, it's a bed and breakfast and a museum. You can stay there. Quite ghoulish, I think. And by the way, she gave her mother 19 wax and her father 10. Just to be accurate. And on that grisly note, I'll sign off. But I'll be back on Sunday, 9pm Sydney time, with a non-murderous classic. And I wish you all a great rest of the week. Till next time then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads. Nudie Reads.